Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. I'm your host this week, Alexander Zalvin, class of 99. A couple of notes before we start. If you would like to check out the website for more information, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni, or you can check out the Facebook page, Cornell Young Alumni Programs, for news, upcoming events, volunteer opportunities, and more. And I'm very excited about the guest that we have on the show this week. He is a multi-talented guy who has had a varying amount of careers. We're going to talk about his whole career path and what brought him to this point. His name is Stephen Hall. He's class of 06, and he's currently the co-founder of Tinker Coffee Company, a specialty coffee roaster out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So... This is something that I've been asking a few folks, and I always find it very interesting to find out from people because we also are so very tied to Cornell. What is your first memory of Cornell? Well, it's funny. So I am a a fourth generation Cornellian. So uh, my first memory was back when I was in elementary school. My family, uh, we were living in Massachusetts at the time, and I drove out to Ithaca with my dad uh, from Massachusetts and went to a football game and remember staying at the Statler and ordering, uh, you know, room service and like watching cheers on TV when my dad was out at at an alumni event. So my first memory of Cornell was was pretty early on. And every day after that was exactly right that just ordering room service, chilling out, watching (laughs) cheers, right? Yep, exactly. It was like Home Alone. Yeah. yeah. As a fourth generation Cornelian, did you feel, was there a certain inevitability to it? Was there a point where you're like, no, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to Brown. <laughs> I, I didn't feel any need to rebel. Um, you know, Cornell is obviously such a, a great school that it always was, um, it always something I was, it was, I was striving for. So I, um, I, I was proud of my, my family's history at the school and I was always excited to go. So it, it did feel a little bit inevitable, but uh, I didn't. I didn't mind that at all. So, what was your major at Cornell? I, we're going to get into one of the big facets of what you did there in a second, but I'm curious to hear where you started. Yeah, so I was in the hotel school. Uh, my focus uh, during my time there was primarily in marketing. I, I thought for a while that I wanted to go to law school. I took quite a few uh, law classes, and kind of leading up to my, my upper class, uh, years. But, um, I, I found that, you know, through my, my hotel school law classes that I, I really love the, the strategy of, you know, reading cases, reading briefs and understanding all the elements that led to a particular decision. Uh, and ultimately I, I found that I, I liked those, uh, that kind of fact finding and discovery in business more than I liked the actual law piece. So I'm glad that worked out, but uh, ultimately, I got more into uh, you know strategic marketing and more um, more strategy uh, through business at the hotel school. So, how did that lead towards working at the Vineyard at Cordell? I knew during my time in Ithaca that I wanted to stay for a summer. You know, I I, I took internships throughout my my uh, my schooling, but I knew one year I needed to stay in Ithaca and just appreciate the summer. So, you know, one day I was just walking the halls in the hotel school and saw a flyer that said, you know, hiring a tasting room manager for Front Neck Point Vineyards. And I thought, this is perfect. You know, this is a great way to, to stick around uh, Ithaca. I was also playing baseball uh, for Cornell at the time. So it was a great way to stay in training and 
and uh, you know, kind of stretch that um, that that wine muscle that I, I had started to kind of develop a little bit in school. Um, so yeah, so I took a job, you know, in the summer, uh, working as the tasting room manager for Front Neck Point Vineyards. So I got to do a lot of different things around the vineyard. I got to uh, to help in in the actual the vineyard itself in the fields. I got to, of course, manage the tasting room and just have a lot of great conversations with a lot of different people through uh, through the tasting room. So. It was a blast. You know, I, I just really kind of caught the bug after that for, for the wine industry. I loved how different wine could be, how all the styles were, or I guess how the, how the winemaker could influence all the styles, certainly the agricultural aspect of it. So really caught the bug working in the, the tasting room at Front Act Point. Not that anybody drinks underage at Cornell or anything no. like that, but it is certainly the majority of folks, I think, if they're familiar with wine at all, it's going to be Boone's Farm, right? It's going to be right. a, a really horribly gross, cheap bottle of wine. But it sounds like you went in a very different direction. What drew you to wine and where were you in your development in terms of learning about wine when you were, by the time you went into that vineyard? You know, I, I had taken the wines class in the year leading up to uh, to taking the job. So I, I had a background, you know, the wines class in the hotel school is, is almost, uh, it's probably, you know, universally known just in the, in, at, at, at Cornell, just as being a really fun class, but also really educational and really hard class. So taking that class really kind of planted the seed for, you know, understanding this really complex beverage that uh, that can go in so many different directions and has so much great history so i think just the 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 learning of of wine and the experience of wine through that class was really what started that that um that kind of that sprouted that seed but yeah I, I was actually underage when i took that class so i'm glad <laughs> that the new york state rules allow that to happen <laughs> uh, that great for me yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and then when you graduated you went almost directly into working in the wine industry right you got it. Yep. So I was hired by E&J Gallo into their management development program right out of school. They give you a few options, you know, on different markets where you can go depending on on where they need to place new grads. And uh, living in, in Massachusetts early on in my life, I thought it'd be fun to go back and live in Boston as an adult. So I, uh, I took a job in, in Boston and had a real big uh, sales territory, essentially, for a distributor called Commonwealth Wine and Spirits. And I was traveling, you know, living in downtown Boston and had accounts in downtown Boston, but I was going all over the, the eastern portion of the state, really, uh, calling on accounts and, and just helping to, to grow my book of business in uh, with the distributor. So a lot of good wine experience uh, through the distributor, a lot of great experiences there with, with different producers, but also really great sales experience, too, through that, um, through that time. Let's talk about that business experience a little bit, because I think that's an aspect of the industry people don't even understand exists. You know, I think when most people think about wine, they think of wandering through a vineyard as the sun glints on grapes, dot, 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 bottle of wine. But obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. So talk me through not necessarily your day-to-day -day responsibilities, but what would you do on the business side of working with a wine company? Yeah. So, you know, the, the tricky thing, of course, like you were saying, you know, that, that the winemaker might have this beautiful piece of property and go through all the right steps and have this beautiful label created and everything else. But ultimately, someone has to sell that wine. There's so much wine out there in the world that uh, you really have to find a way to make 
it unique and, and, and offer something of value to the store owner, the shop owner that's going to ultimately buy and sell that, that wine. So for us, the, the business side was learning more about, you know, all, all of the individual aspects of the wine, what makes it unique, but also the business side of, of structuring deals, understanding how you can put together, you know, either incentives or pricing, you know, um, just different pricing structures for different shops based on volume. So there was that, you know, understanding of how to work with a shop owner to make something uh, that could be productive for, for both of us. So I could, I could sell more and they could ultimately sell more to their customers. That was a big thing. One other thing that I, I really learned a lot about was, you know, the ability to, to take projection uh, and to, to not be discouraged when someone says, no, I don't, I don't want this or I, I don't really see the value in that. Uh, so that was a huge learning for me from the business side as well, is just understanding how to, to, to understand what a shop owner, the challenges of a particular shop owner or account, uh, what those challenges are and, and how you can provide a solution for those challenges. So those were the biggest business examples or business uh, learnings that I think I got early on. You touched on this a little bit in terms of every business being different and every particular buying need being different, but was there a particular stumbling block for people when it came to selling them on the wine? Was there something that universally you kind of had to get over? Well, you know, the big challenge in, and this is not a knock on, on Gallo, but you know, they've been around for so long and uh, in, 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 for a lot of people, the, the thought of Gallo is the big jug, you know, Carlo Rossi for, you know, gallon, a jug of wine. So you sometimes have to overcome the perception of, well, this is just, uh, it's, a, it's a cheaper product. It's a, it's a lower quality product, which is not the case in, in a lot of instances. Uh, so you kind of have to get over that preconception of what the brand actually is or what the extensions of the brand are. Uh, so that was one thing that was, that was kind of interesting. But again, it's, it's all about finding solutions. You know, you need to find or learn as much as you can about a particular account to understand which wines could be productive and which wines might be worth, um, you know, setting aside. So it's, uh, it's really just about consultation and being a consultative salesperson. That was one of the biggest things that, uh, that was helpful for me. Eventually you did leave the wine industry though, moved to Cleveland and pursued an MBA at Case Western. What led to that decision? Well, I, so I, I was selling wine in Boston. I transferred to uh, a different distributor within the program in Chicago and was working there uh, for another year and ultimately decided that I wanted to, to get into um, a little bit more of like a, a technology focused field at that point. I had, I had had a, about enough of, um, you know, kind of on the road selling at that point. I just needed to, to stretch my, my business legs a little bit. So um, I found a job with a, a software company called Meltwater. I was selling a really interesting product that uh, essentially scanned the internet for mentions of uh, really whatever you wanted. And I uh, was working at the software company where um, I ended up working with uh, the sorority sister of my now wife, uh, my now wife's. Uh, and she introduced me to my wife, who was in dental school in Cleveland at the time. Uh, so I was in Chicago, she was in Cleveland. We started talking, we started dating long distance, and ultimately we said, hey, this is getting pretty serious. I should probably move to Cleveland. You know, she was there for, for two or four years. And I thought, well, you know, I wanted to get my MBA. She's got two years left. I've got a two-year MBA program ahead of me. 
let's merge up and sync up our educations. We'll graduate at the same time and we'll be able to start our lives together after that. So my, my now wife kind of got me to, to Cleveland. I'm glad that worked out. <laughs> worked out great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that led to, that led to where you are now, uh, even tangentially, right? Starting Tinker Coffee Company. So talk me through that. What led to that decision? How did the business get it set up? Yeah. So it, it really did, you know, it's kind of funny how, how your life kind of all lines up and pieces together exactly the way it should, whether you know it or not at the time. So uh, through meeting my wife, I uh, was, I then married into this wonderful family. Uh, my wife has two sisters and both of their husbands, we all get along fantastically well. And uh, my wife's, uh, she's the youngest of three, her middle sister, her husband, Jeff, uh, he and I, you know, really hit it off from day one. And we kind of always talked about starting a business together, even when we were working in, in different jobs. Uh, Jeff had been working at IBM since he graduated from Purdue in 2006. I was working at, a, at an e-commerce company here in Indiana uh, when we moved back to town. And the more we started talking about it, the more we started saying like, geez, like we both really love coffee. You know, Jeff had traveled around through IBM, been to all these great cities, all these great coffee and cafe cultures, and then would come back to India and, and just felt like we were missing that real, you know, specialty level coffee roaster. We just didn't have that in town. And, and that goes for a lot of things in Indiana, you know, just food and beverage was just a little bit behind the curve. You know, it's just kind of maybe the Midwest style, you know, we were just a little bit behind Chicago, a little bit behind even Cleveland at that point. So we just kind of kept talking about this idea of we love coffee. Coffee doesn't exist here in town the way it should. If we learned how to roast coffee, if we learned everything about the industry, could we be successful? You know, we had a passion for the product in that we enjoyed it a lot, but we knew nothing about the business. But the more we talked about it, the more we felt confident in our ability to learn it. So yeah, ultimately we just decided to take the plunge, quit our jobs, invest all of our time and energy into coffee roasting and started the business. So in 2014, we kind of started to, to hatch the, the business plan and, and get our, our ducks in a row. Uh, if I can speak frankly, it seems like you're a guy who likes to take big leaps towards yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's, that's, that's right. I, I'm not afraid of risk, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, was there any hesitance on your part, though, to go from after you had to put the wine industry behind you to jump back into a food industry? No, I was actually dying to get back into it. You know, the one of the things that I think was most influential for me from the hotel school was just how connected hospitality is to every aspect of business. You know, how how interacting with a person one on one and, and making sure that they're taken care of and, and meeting their needs and, and going above and beyond for someone else. I really missed that in, in my kind of more corporate, you know, quote unquote jobs. So I was dying to get back into to the food and beverage industry. Um, and, I, and I wasn't, I, I guess I had that confidence too, because of course, you know, once you start a coffee company, you need to sell the coffee. So I was kind of ready to get back into that, into that sales mode, especially for a product that was my own that I could really feel confident about selling. So yeah, I was, I was ready to get back. It sounds like your business degree in a certain way was the secret weapon there. You hear so many stories about people who say, oh, I love to cook. I'm going to open up a restaurant. And then a month later, it's closed and they're completely broke. But from what you're telling me, it sounds like you having that experience and having built up that experience is the thing that ultimately made it work. I think so. Yeah. I mean, 
the way we we see it happen a lot in coffee is that you you kind of either go the route you described, which is you love coffee, you're passionate about the product, the people, the supply chain, everything, but maybe you're not so uh, I don't want savvy is not the right word, but just you know versed in business. You know maybe you're just a little bit behind where others might with a business education, or you kind of go the other way where you're all business and maybe less focused on the nuance and the real personal stories in the coffee supply chain, which can also be, you know, a challenge or a problem. And I think both Jeff and I, because we, we care about that supply chain and have a real strong business background, we're able to keep those elements in balance. And I think that's been really, really important and, and critical to, to our success and our growth through the years. There's, of course, certain similarities, particularly in terms of how people treat them. But what do you find the differences are between the wine industry and the coffee industry? Well, I think one of the, the biggest differences, uh, to me, tasting wine and going through a sensory evaluation of a wine, looking back on it, seemed very easy now. Uh, you know, <laughs> being able to pick out individual flavors in wine, I think I had an easier time with that. It took me a long time to get really schooled up in the nuance of coffee uh, from a sensory perspective, you know, understanding and being able to identify and pick out flavors as we, you know, cup coffees to decide what we're ultimately going to purchase, understanding the differences between this lot from Colombia and this lot from Guatemala, all those little factors, you know, it, it really took a lot of practice to feel confident from a sensory perspective. So that was one big difference, but there's a ton of similarities, you know, um, you're still, you're still selling a product to someone who, uh, you know, has to care about the quality of, of what you're selling. It, it can't just be a commodity. You have to really, uh, work with accounts to, to show them this is, this is the story behind this product. And this is why your customers might be willing to pay a little bit more for it. So yeah, there's, uh, there, there are a lot of similarities, but certainly some differences. You touched on this a little bit, but talk us through the how you choose a coffee. Yeah, it's actually a really fun process. So right now we work with about a half dozen different importers all over the country. A lot of them are either in Portland or Seattle. Uh, but what essentially happens throughout the year is, is since coffee is, uh, it's obviously an agricultural product, it's a seasonal product. So different coffees from different parts of the world are coming in and out of season at different times. So as coffees are starting to be harvested and processed at their different countries of origin, we receive samples of those coffees, usually a few hundred grams at a time from our importers. And then we roast those samples, 120 grams at a time in a little baby kind of miniature roaster at our shop. So we'll roast those hundred grams and then we'll cup the coffees, which is uh, honestly very similar to what you might expect in the wine tasting. You know, we go through and, and smell the coffees as they're ground, just dry coffee grounds. And we'll pour water on the cups and smell them as they're brewing, get the nice aromatics of the coffee. Uh, then we'll actually scoop the grounds off the top of those cups and slurp the coffee, kind of like you'd, you'd hear in a wine tasting. So we get a real complete perspective on the fragrance, the aromatics, and the taste of these coffees that are coming into the country. So we'll, we'll go through and sample those. We'll sample them blind so we won't know which coffees from which farmers we're tasting. We just know kind of sample A versus sample B versus sample C. And uh, we get together as a team after we've cupped and, and we talk about the coffees. And then we say which 
were the most, you know, which had the best clarity, which had the best vibrancy, which were the most balanced, the most complex, you name it, and find the winners on those tables. And ultimately then those are the coffees that we decide to import uh, on, a, on a much bigger scale. I was looking through the blog on your website a little bit, and there's some really fascinating, in-depth, very scientific looks about the different aspects of coffee. And the thing that I thought was most interesting that I, I guess I kind of knew in the back of my head, but it didn't really crystallize until I was reading the blog is it's not just the beans, right? It's also what the coffee customer wants at any particular time. It's the water, it's the temperature you're roasting at. It's all of that. Yeah, there's so many factors that can influence the ultimate, you know, cup that winds up in front of you and, and certainly the coffee that, uh, that goes into that cup. So that's part of the fun is, is, you know, once you understand the elements of, you know, what makes a particular coffee great or kind of what are the, what's the fingerprint of a particular coffee is, is one really fruit forward is one really chocolatey is one tastes like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you know, all those different factors, once you understand kind of what the coffee's got going on, and then you understand how you can manipulate your brew through your grind size, your brew technique, all these different factors, then it's like this whole world opens up for coffee and you can really, you've got total control over the process. And then it just becomes really, really fun uh, to, to enjoy a cup of coffee if you're making it yourself or at a, at a cafe. Ultimately, since there are so many different factors, how do you deliver a consistent product? We have a couple different systems in place to help us stay super consistent. The first is a system that uh, it's actually an open source system called Tipica. And Tipica is a, a variety of coffee uh, tree, which is where that name comes from. But um, anyway, this system allows us to input data from our, our coffee roaster, which is, uh, is actually information that's fed through thermocouples that, uh, that read temperatures throughout the, the roasting process. And that information is, is input into Tipica in real time and then plotted on a chart. And if you just Google, you know, coffee roast profile, you'll see uh, tons of examples of these curves, the roast curves that kind of show the temperature of the coffee beans throughout the roast process. So we track every single roast that we do through this system. And we're able to uh, basically put up a profile of a particular coffee. So we know if this one coffee from Malawi roasts in a certain way that we really like, we're able to keep that roast curve up on the screen, hit go when we start a new roast, and then make adjustments to the gas, to the airflow uh, throughout the roast process to stay kind of online with this roast profile that we've kind of identified as our favorite. So that's one way we do it is, is through tracking of the roast curve. And then we also use some spreadsheets that help us track a few different pieces through the roast, certain temperatures at certain times we're really paying attention to. And we've got that information from every single roast that we've ever done. You know, when, when Jeff and I were getting started roasting, we had no commercial roasting experience. So we had to track everything we were doing so we could know if we were doing something right or wrong. You know, we had to say, if this roast went wrong, well, that's because this piece, you know, this temperature was off at this time. So we needed that reference. So thankfully, we got in a really good habit of, of tracking information. And that system's helped us stay super consistent over the years. Let's say I want to have a really good cup of coffee at home and I don't necessarily want to set up a bunch of spreadsheets. What are, <laughs> what are some tips that you might have to up my coffee quality? Well, we would say the first thing is, is invest in a good grinder. You know, that's, that's the most important thing. If you buy pre-ground coffee, 
that coffee is just going to be a little bit more oxidized than it than it should be. Investing in a good grinder, you know, 100, 200 bucks, depending on your budget, that'll really go a long way in upping your coffee quality at home. You know, you could take a regular Mr. Coffee coffee maker, you know, that'll cost you $25 and put really great freshly roasted coffee in it and get a pretty good product out of it. You know, there's lots of other things that you can do uh, from a brewer's perspective. You know, I, I bought a, a Technovorm Mocha Master, which is a a reasonably expensive coffee maker for my my house, but um, you know I convinced my dad to get one because the quality's there, and and I've convinced other people that it's it's worth the money. So you can spend you know money on getting a really great consistent drip cup of coffee at home. But honestly, the most important thing is is a good grinder and and buying you know freshly roasted coffee. So find a local coffee roaster, find someone that uh, you know roasts the way you like it, and uh, and support a local roaster and get a good grinder and. The rest should pretty much take care of itself with a little bit of effort. Uh, that recalls you talking about when you first were deciding to set up Tinker Coffee, um, that Indiana didn't have a product like this to at the time. What was the reaction when you opened? Did they immediately embrace it? Was there a hesitancy? What happened? There, we, we did, thankfully, get embraced pretty quickly. And... Part of the reason why we kind of figured that would happen was because craft beer had, had of course, exploded in Indiana like it has kind of all over the country. And we knew that people were being more comfortable or getting more comfortable spending a little bit more on a beer that, you know, had higher quality, had better ingredients, had a more interesting flavor profile. So we thought that, well, if we can help educate the, the customer base here in town, if we can help educate them or draw the parallels between specialty coffee and craft beer kind of make that connection in people's minds, then the rest would kind of take care of itself. And people would understand, you know, once I drink a cup of really great coffee and I compare that to, you know, whatever coffee I've been drinking before, there's a real, uh, a real difference between those, those qualities. So uh, we knew there was going to be a big educational piece, but we felt like that groundwork had been set uh, from the breweries in town, thankfully. But one thing we, we really focused on early on in our, our company life cycle was, was cupping classes. So I mentioned you know, the cupping process that we go through when we decide what coffees we're going to buy. Uh, for the first two years of our business, basically, we were running cupping classes almost every Sunday for you know, three or four weeks out of the month, just taking people through cupping educating them on our roast process, on the supply chain for specialty coffee, and ultimately going through and, and cupping a coffee and evaluating a coffee in the same way that we would. And our biggest thing was, you know, we don't expect someone to come in for a cupping class and, you know, perceive the, the flavor nuance between, you know, this coffee has notes of plum and fig and this one's got apricot and, and stone fruit. You know, that's not the point of the cupping class. The point of the cupping class is for you or anyone to come in and say, I can taste this Kenyan coffee, this Guatemalan coffee, and this Ethiopian coffee. And while I might not be able to say exactly what the differences are, I can perceive the differences. I can, I, I know that these coffees taste different from one another. And that kind of helps to start the wheels turning in someone's mind that there's this whole other industry out there that you can explore. And then it becomes really fun for people to, to get into coffee because it is such a you know common beverage for most of us every day. So helping that educational side of things was, was really important for our growth too. I think I'm getting a sense of this anyway, but where did the name Tinker Coffee come from? So it's, it's partly what you can imagine, which is tinkering with roasts, you know, to get them right, tinkering with the coffee to get it right. But 
there's also a historical element to the name. Uh, we are located on 16th Street in downtown Indianapolis. And there was a Tinker family that uh, had a big piece of property about a block away from, from where, we, uh, where our shop is located. So there's this stretch of 16th Street that was known as Tinker Street, uh, you know, kind of in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So you actually see a couple of businesses around us used the Tinker name as a historical callback to, to their location in Indianapolis, which is both good and bad. You know, there's, there's Tinker Coffee. There's a restaurant just two blocks away from us here in town called Tinker Street. So we get confused for one another all the time. There's now a, a really great event space, just another few blocks down the road from us that's called the Tinker House. So we've had people come into our roastery, you know, in suits and dresses and say, I'm here for the wedding. And it's like, well... <laughs> You know, <laughs> you got to go down a couple blocks to get to it. So we, there's now this kind of confusion, or uh, I guess it's it's a it's a good thing. But yeah, it's a historical element plus also the uh, the actual tinkering with the coffee. So that's where the name came from. Are there any plans to expand outside of Indianapolis? Yeah, so we uh, we ship coffee all over the country right now uh, through our online shop. Uh, we have a subscription that is really really popular. We ship coffee. Uh, both to a lot of my Cornell friends and, and friends that I, uh, you know, I've made throughout the years all over the country through that subscription. So California to Alaska to uh, you know, Miami and New York, we send coffee all over the country uh, through that subscription too. But um, there are also certain um, multi-roaster cafes you know, over the country that, uh, that might use different roasters at different times or rotate different roasters at different times. So We've been uh, a, a guest roaster at uh, actually shop up in up in upstate New York for a little while. Uh, we've been uh, on the menu at shops in, in Ohio and in um, Kentucky, and uh, we're we're now starting to to send coffee to more multi roaster cafes to to get on that menu for a little bit all over the country. So yeah, definitely expansions in the future for sure. And do you think you'll ever uh, have the coffee served at the hotel school just to bring everything full circle? <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. If anybody from the hotel school is listening, we'd love to do it. But actually, I think uh, I think for a while, maybe even when I was there, uh, Gimme Coffee was was on campus. And I know they have a shop in the in the Gates building. And we love Gimme Coffee. They, they've been everybody at Gimme Coffee in Ithaca has been so wonderful to us. Every time I come back to school, I, I make a point to stop by their roastery and just hang out with them and just get as much, you know, learn as much from them as I can. So um yeah, if we weren't served at, at the hotel school, I would hope that Gimme would be because we love we love Gimme. They're an awesome company. Cool. Uh, before we let you go, just plug the website where people can pick up the coffee or sign up for a subscription. Yeah, TinkerCoffee.com. Nice and easy. Um, all the links to the subscription in the shop are all right there on the, on the website. So uh, check out the website, TinkerCoffee.com. Check us out on social. We're, we're Tinker Coffee on Instagram, Facebook, you name it. The only one we don't have Tinker Coffee is, is on Twitter. We're Tinker Coffee Co. on Twitter. For whatever reason, someone else got Tinker Coffee. So we'll, we'll eventually get that. But <laughs> yeah, Tinker Coffee on social and TinkerCoffee.com. Excellent. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornellians. Again, if you want to find out more about the show and plenty other things Cornell alumni, go to alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni. Also, you can check out Facebook, the Cornell Young Alumni Programs page for upcoming events, news, volunteer opportunities, and more. I'm going to go get myself a cup of coffee. We'll check you guys next time. Music from Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded 
recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2014. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. 